Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In our previous episode, we discussed some basic differences between the American and Canadian healthcare systems and their resulting implications for population health with our guest, Rose Marcellin, a senior public health analyst in the U.S., She remains with us in this episode to shift our conversation to the importance of integrating cultural competence in healthcare to prevent and address health disparities that disproportionately affect ethnic and racial minorities. This is where we left off. We've talked about healthcare coverage and and things like that. So you might think, okay, you have healthcare coverage, but in the context of the United States and even in Canada as well, um, as the population gets even more diverse, um, healthcare providers and the healthcare system at large experiences a l- numerous challenges to ensure that culturally competent services are available for racial and ethnic minorities. And the reason I bring this up is having access or affordable healthcare is only one element in the problem. The fact that you it's affordable and accessible doesn't mean that you're getting the best quality. So this is where Mm-hmm. something like cultural competence comes in where um, this is more of an understanding of the diverse needs of a population in terms of patient-centered care and it gets away from the one-size-fits-all type of model. So let's get into uh, maybe what a definition of cultural competency. Yeah, the the definition that I kind of use um, is highlighted in the article you mentioned in, in the intro Um, It says that cultural competence is the ability of providers and organizations to effectively deliver healthcare services that meet the social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients. And when I think about that definition, I I know often, you know, when we think about cultural competence, you just think about the social and the cultural piece. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we sometimes neglect the linguistic Mm -hmm. needs of patients as well. And so I was kind of reminded a little bit, um, you know, a couple years ago, my mom, so I'm Haitian, she's Haitian, she speaks Creole, and, you know, she speaks English, but um, the proficiency is not always there. Um, And so she was going through some medical issues, and I was here, and I said, I'll go with her. Um, Just because I know she, while she might understand the gist of the conversation, um, sometimes the nuances that goes into your medical appointments might, it might get lost in translation for her. Um, so I was able to go with her um, just to make sure that when I knew what she was supposed to be doing, right? Um, and then also just to have, you know, someone there, if she had questions, I can kind of help make sure she was able to articulate what she wanted asked. Um, and I think about what that experience must be like for her where, you know, she's at a point where she knows she needs to go to the doctor, but there's this kind of concern in the back of her head that she might not understand fully what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it goes back to this linguistic needs of patients and how do we incorporate that in healthcare settings? 
you know, I think the the ideal, of course, would be that every provider or every facility will have um, interpreters and things like that. But we know that's not the case. So how do our healthcare systems, you know, better prepare and engage with their patients that might have social and cultural differences um, from the norm? And I'm using air quotes around the norm, but mm -hmm. um, you know what I'm saying there. Yeah, and, you know, that's a good point also, Rose, because linguistically, it's very important in terms of, you know, someone can go to the doctor, get treatment or get medications if they're sick and if they're able to afford it because of healthcare or prescription coverage, the next place they're going to go to is the pharmacy. So when most pharmacies are printing labels in English and predominantly have pharmacists who maybe only speak one language, which is English, then it extends beyond the immediate healthcare or primary care setting to other uh, peripheral and supportive parts of the healthcare system. Because if this person sees a doctor, gets the appropriate medication, then it's it's another thing in terms of um, disease management now with the pharmacy, right? Because if they are not able to comprehend the instructions with the linguistic piece that you mentioned, then they're not going to be able to keep their condition under control. And then this is going to put even more pressure on the healthcare system when that person is readmitted. So I wanted to emphasize that as well. Yeah, that, that, that linguistic piece, I think, um, is so often neglected. I think sometimes when we are looking at um, whether it's just health messaging or sharing health information, mm. um, even going beyond the linguistic to include uh, like plain language and um, how we disseminate health information. Um, but I'll take it back to the linguistic piece. Just for example, I know in some you know, urban and culturally diverse areas that you will find um, health information or even the pharmacist labels on your prescriptions or the little information sheet will have multiple languages on there. Um, so I know in Miami, for example, where I was raised, like I know when my mom would go to the doctor, she would get the information sheet oftentimes in Haitian Creole. Now she lives in Gainesville, Florida, and that's not happening up here. Um, but there, there are places that are definitely understanding of, you know, who their populations are and, and who they serve and they do a better job, um, of meeting some of those needs. You know, Rose, I love the part that you brought up linguistics because I work in cancer education. So when you bring up terms like plain language and stuff, I'm like, all right, here we go. Let's, let's talk about yes, this. Yes, do it, right? <laughs> yeah, let, let, me, let me pop off here for a second. Go ahead. So, so the thing that I find frustrating with healthcare is that um, a lot of complex medical information is being brought up to patients in a position where they're vulnerable. You know, there's things where they're dealing with their medical diagnosis. There's a lot of cognitive load. Things that you think might be understandable are not just because of the virtue of what they're going through. So when we have patient education materials, a lot of the times we have to put them in these plain language principles, which is a science that's been shown in the literature. So looking at high reading grade levels, looking at what level of complex medical jargon is being used in the information. Are there any unfamiliar abstract terms? So, for example, you hear the word oncologist. What is an oncologist? We change that word to cancer doctor. Oh, OK, now I know what that means. Right. So. There was actually the study that was given where I want to say that it was looking at physicians prescribing um, certain prognosis or uh, medical practices to patient physicians. Now, what these physicians, they did is they didn't take the time to explain it because they were like, 
these patients are doctors. They, they've been to medical school. They, they know what we're talking about, right? So they had that assumption. So they gave them that information. Then they looked at the health outcomes of those patient physicians, and they found that they weren't listening to the prescriptions. And we're, we're wondering, why, why is that, right? And we find that despite your level of education or your assumed high literacy levels, when you're put in that position where you have to talk about your healthcare, like there is so much cognitive load that we can't assume that you know what we're talking about. So we talk about linguistics, we talk about different languages, but even at the level of just cognitive functioning, it doesn't work the way that we think. And I find it disappointing that our healthcare system hasn't really figured that out yet. Wow, I think that's that's a great point. And really, um, plain language is kind of like my bread and butter. Essentially, I so I, I know I sent you guys the cultural competence articles, but no matter how culturally competent your materials are, or you mm. might be as a provider, if you cannot communicate with your patient in a way that's clear and understandable, it's, it's essentially oftentimes going to go in one ear and not the other. Um, I think you bring up a good point about that research. And I actually want to read that article, um, but just I'll take myself as an example. You know, I think I'm pretty smart and, you know, oftentimes I'll go, you know, to the doctor and I'll read some of the, you know, flyers on the wall and stuff. And I'm always like, who wrote this? Like, who Mm -hmm. designed this? Because I'm having to hit the Google real quick on my phone, like just to be like, oh, what does that mean again? Um, Just to kind of understand the message. So I think about if I, you know, have you know, just a quick issue, just understanding what I'm seeing. And it's a pretty, it might be a pretty flyer, but I'm not registering the message. Um, You know, all of that goes into, you know, plain language and understanding um, your audience and just, you know, reading levels and health and literacy, let let alone health literacy um, and understanding what it is that we're trying to articulate. I almost sometimes joke like, in public health and in healthcare, when we communicate information to the public, it's like we assume everyone is a doctor, a public health person. And it's like, no, we, we don't know what it is that you're talking about. And I think it's our responsibility to do our due diligence, to make the information as clear as possible, um, even if that means taking that extra time um, to, to make certain that it, it, it resonates with who you're intending it to. Right. And that's so difficult because obviously in healthcare, there is no time and there is no resources. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you guys bring up great points about that linguistic aspect. So what we're talking about right now is um, healthcare services that meet social, cultural and linguistic needs of patients. And I think that's very important because it's been shown that this can actually improve health outcomes and help, I guess, eliminate racial and ethnic health disparities. But I think one of the things that I found while I was doing some research was why why did cultural competence actually emerge as an important issue? So um, based on my findings and the articles I read, there are three reasons why um, cultural competence has emerged. So the first point was that the U.S., as we talked about, is becoming more diverse and so that clinicians are seeing more patients from diverse backgrounds and perspectives, and they're all influenced by like their social and cultural backgrounds. The second is that, as I mentioned, research has showed that the provider-patient communication is linked to various indicators such as satisfaction, adherence to medical instructions, like you guys were mentioning, and um, health outcomes. And finally, this all kicked off because of a couple of landmark papers by the Institute of Medicine. 
So I think that's where we're at now. And that's kind of the roots of how cultural competence kind of became integrated to in a bunch of our health institutions today. So I'm wondering then, um, not to get too philosophical, do it. Is it, it's a, you know, is it, is it the chicken or the egg situation? Is the lack of cultural competency the reason healthcare disparities exist? Or is it simply just maybe a process or a solution to address some of those health disparities? I was thinking about it more as a band aid more than anything. Because, mm. like, it's already a systemic issue, right? And right. we can't fix a systemic issue tomorrow. We can't do that. So we need that Band-Aid in the meantime to give us enough time uh, to resolve issues like that. So, um, Sully, that's a great point you brought up because I'm thinking, so you're training already existing clinicians, healthcare providers to become more culturally competent, essentially. But I know there in, and I mentioned it earlier, in education, there is also institutional racism in that people of color are kind of encouraged to go away from the the STEM field and go into more um, skill-based or applied types of field like the trades. Mm -hmm. So that has led to things that people might have heard of called affirmative action for certain types of programs where the representation and diversity is lacking. So is that more of a fix for um, if you want to have cultural competency, should healthcare then be more diverse in of itself? I think of it as, you know, sometimes we say, at least when I was in my MPH program, I remember cultural competence being like a buzzword at the time. Um, and it's not like, okay, you take one class <laughs> on cultural competency, boom, mm-hmm. I'm culturally competent now. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think um, it's, it's an ongoing process mm-hmm. um, and it's a continual learning and educating that needs to happen around cultural competency. I think one of the articles I think I linked sent talked about, you know, it has to be some level of willingness by the providers and the healthcare system to make their clinical settings uh, culturally accessible to their patients. And Mm. it's done at the decision-making level. So there has to be more than just a one-time course. I think one of the solutions or suggestions they make in the article is like, oh, you provide culturally competent trainings and stuff like that. And I think it it goes beyond just training, like a one-time, two-hour course, but it it must be sustained by, you know, at the highest levels of decision-making. It needs to be known that this is, you know, policy that we are being intentional about this. Um, And I think it also talks about, you know, the physician's uh, level of responsibility to understand the different cultural aspects of health and illness that comes with the populations that they serve. Um, Because just because they come into a, a doctor's office doesn't mean this was their first choice or even their second choice. They might have, you know, done something else before they came to see you. But it's also understanding how, you know, your role as a provider fits into their world and their norms. Um, and I don't think a, a two-hour course is going to change that. I agree. Um, I'm trying not to be too cynical here, <laughs> but uh, I think it's very difficult to have cultural competency being applied within the healthcare setting. It's trying to. It's kind of like making a circle fit into a square. And what I mean by that is that if we look at the healthcare system, we look at physicians and nurses, everyone is overworked. They may not have the motivation to engage in these extracurricular learning opportunities because as you said, it can't be done in a two-hour, one-day course, 
right? In order to check our own biases, our own understandings, it has to be sustained learning through adult learning theory. There has to be motivation, et cetera, et cetera. And if these individuals are more concerned about getting their patient survival to the next day, then it's difficult to have that conversation. I think, I don't I don't agree that it's a Band-Aid, but I think that cultural competency should be taught within medical schools, nursing mm. schools. It has to be taught earlier yeah. on mm-hmm. versus just kind of like, oh, we need to be aware of this thing right now. And I got to coordinate with like the nursing manager to get all the staff on this one day to go to this place. Like, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Or it's right. not going to happen as quickly as we think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, it's definitely not a quick fix solution. Um, but they, they, you know, there are some things that are practical that I think um, our healthcare systems can recognize and, and utilize to their own benefit as well as for their patients. Like they talk about, um, you know, coordinating with or having community health workers, um, mm. especially in, 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 in communities that, you know, might have different, you know, language barriers and cultural mm. barriers, but having, you know, someone who looks like them, mm. you know, come and talk to them and help explain like, okay, these are your medications. These are what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of studies on the benefits of using community health workers right. and how that leads to positive, you know, health outcomes or lower, you know, ER emission rates um, mm-hmm. for patients with chronic diseases. So, you know, there's definitely benefits to using, you know, community health workers. I think they also highlight um, just being able to coordinate with traditional healers, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a little sensitive topic in medicine. Um, and it's not saying, you know, send your patient there, but just also understand, you know, the cultural practices that might influence the community where you're serving. So I think the hospital system or even the healthcare system, you know, at some point, you know, can not at the individual physician level, but the broader system in general um, can work to incorporate some of these other, you know, services that can benefit their patients. Yeah, ex- exactly. And you, you bring up the point about traditional healers. When I was in Thailand for some work, um, I actually was visiting a rural hospital and one of the things they had there, they had a department or a specific unit for intermediate care. So intermediate care is kind of more um, care provided to acute patients that are medically stable, but really too unstable to be treated in alternative healthcare settings like your house or home. So, for example, they had like individuals that may have had a stroke recently. So they were still kept in the hospital in a specific unit. So this unit also kept track of some of the data um, on these patient outcomes. And so um, intermediate care was relatively a new unit there. And they did find positive outcomes for these patients in terms of their recovery times. But what was notable is that when they actually added a traditional healing component to their care, they actually saw marked improvements and positive results. So this kind of just reminds me of um, more of that the WHO definition of health. It's like health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not just merely the absence of a disease. So more of that holistic lens. That's such a, a piece. And I think sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, at a major hospital, they don't have time to, you know, incorporate these things um, mm-hmm. or these practices. But, you know, I've done um, looking at the uh, patient-centered care model where I I did a time in Florida evaluating that the state was looking at implementing this model into all of, you know, their uh, pediatric uh, practices, Um, or not all of them, but a lot of them. But the idea was, you know, you have one place where 
a patient, especially is, is looking at children with special health care needs, where they can go to get all kinds of care, not just their physical care, but they had a nurse manager who coordinated uh, with the school to make sure the child had you know, services in school. They made sure the parents had affordable housing. They made sure um, or they worked with the family for all kinds of different, you know, things beyond just the child's physical needs or their needs at that one appointment. Um, and mm-hmm. the issue did come down to funding and budgets because it does take a lot of extra funds to provide this wraparound service. However, the practices that were able to sustain that Um, they saw their patients less. They didn't have to, you know, come in so often for different, you know, flare ups like asthma issues or things like that. You know, they were coming in for their regularly, you know, scheduled appointments like they were supposed to, not these, you know, emergent incidents that would happen. So there are long term health benefits, but I think oftentimes it's hard to get to that because we're constantly burdened by the costs associated with implementing some of these practices. So the way I see cultural competence is more of physicians, clinicians, etc., incorporating kind of an understanding of the social determinants of health and how they affect um, patient provider interactions and subsequently health outcomes. So I think it's important to then contextualize that um, there are racial and ethnic disparities that exist, such that in the United States, uh, amongst older adults, African-Americans and Latinos are more likely to report having at least one of the seven major uh, chronic conditions such as asthma, cancer, health, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, and anxiety slash depression. The importance of this is to understand that we're talking about cultural competency, but it's not that, you know, I don't like how the doctor treated me because of my the color of my skin. Um, that is one factor. But what, I, what I'm trying to emphasize is it does move beyond that to impact a lot of health outcomes. And the reason a lot of these health outcomes exist um, after patients go through the healthcare system is you can see it as Rose touched on, the readmission rates disproportionately affect racial and ethnic minorities. So this is a reason why cultural competence is being explored as a way to kind of ensure that the complex needs of different cultures, different ethnicities, races, uh, the linguistic needs are met and that no one is being excluded uh, from the system and that healthcare quality can be the same for all people. So I just wanted to emphasize that as we move through our discussion. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great point. I think it, it just prompted a thought of, you know, when we talk about here, um, Medicare for all, you know, which is shaking up the system and essentially reestablishing or establishing a new way or a new model of healthcare. I think one thing that used to kind of bother me with that discussion is that I don't often hear a lot of this conversation happening around Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Um, Medicare for all was, at least from my understanding or from what, what I took from it was a lot about, you know, under, reshaping or designing the healthcare system in a way that didn't require, you know, paying for services. But I wonder, you know, how far would that go into touching some of these cultural and social determinants of health, you know, that goes beyond just being able to pay for services, but being able to have, you know, a physician that is relatable, that you can go see, that is doesn't take you, 
you know, two hours to go see or have to wait X number of months to go see. Um, and maybe I missed that part of the conversation, but I, it just wasn't something that always was talked about when we talked about Medicare for all here. And even um, just to go off topic for a bit. So we picked this topic where Rose suggested this topic, I should say. And in our we usually do a lot of research to supplement, you know, what our guest speaker has provided to to support the discussion. And even in that, there's hardly anything out there we could find with any kind of credibility or established research or principles around topic of um, topics of you know cultural competence in healthcare and other types of um, cultural principles in healthcare. So I just wanted to uh, make that clear that this is still an emerging kind of approach uh, as a solution to address a lot of these health disparities that we see. So that brings me to the, the question now, when you're implementing new principles, new practices, et cetera, um, what are some of the, the barriers to implementation of something like cultural competence in healthcare practice? Uh, earlier, Ben had mentioned some barriers in terms of healthcare staff being overworked and then to then restructure time and resources to en- enroll in these types of training might be too burdensome, even though it is necessary. Um, I think Rose mentioned this earlier too. It's not that here is a course and you go away. This is something you have to emphasize into your daily practice and actively live and practice this way. So this brings with it numerous challenges that I hope we can talk about right now. I think one of the immediate challenges that I think about is just, you know, things are done a certain way and, you know, it's just the status quo. This is how we do it it's easier to maintain what is happening than it is to change, you know, how we look at things. Um, And that's applicable in a lot of spaces beyond just healthcare, you know, where it's kind of like, well, we've always kind of done it this way, you know, at the end of the day, it still kind of works. (laughs) So let's Mm -hmm. just keep rolling with it. Um, I think sometimes administration or like people who sit at the decision-making tables you know, see the, the the funding piece or how much this is going to cost. Mm. And I always try to think through with them, you know, the upfront costs of some of these changes outweighs, you know, the, the, the long-term costs or healthcare systems, um, the burden that it takes on, you know, the healthcare system at the end, as opposed to putting that money into things upfront. But that's just beyond this conversation, but public health in general, you know, it's easy, in my opinion, it's cheaper to fix it now um, mm-hmm. than to have these issues come back around 20, 30, 40 years from now. Oh, yeah. I think one of the barriers is that it's not, from my experience, being framed as a means to improve health outcomes, despite mm-hmm. the research being there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've seen it be used, as we said, kind of like a buzzword. So there right. isn't really much motivation to be like, oh, yeah. what is cultural competency? Right. However, I think if you framed it like, well, it's this thing that helps you improve health and health outcomes for these populations, I'd be like, all right, cool. Yeah, we'll do 100%. This is in line with our profession. This is what we want to do. This is why we get up every morning in the day. But I just don't see that conversation or that communication being put there personally, which is why I feel like it's a barrier to its implementation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that might even be related to that is maybe the definition of cultural competency. I think in the literature, even there's a lot of um, oh, debate. don't get me started on definitions. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of debate as to what is the actual definition of cultural competency, and I think the fact that many cases when we bring up this topic, 
and people hear that, oh, it's a lifelong process, you'll never achieve cultural competency, that could act as a barrier. People are like, what's the point? When will I reach it? How will I know, right? Mm, how do so I quantify that, it? Exactly. So that could be one of the potential barriers of this. The research is really interesting. Um, I think the couple of studies that I've found around the use of quote-unquote cultural competency, um, mm. you know, they're limited to very small sample sizes, mm-hmm. um, which I think about, you know, in science, you know, you always want a larger sample size. You want to be able to extrapolate that, that data to a broader population, and it's hard to do that looking at, you know, maybe one community, one facility implemented a new 35 policy or patients. system, you know, 35 patients. And while they might have had, you know, amazing health outcomes, you know, a larger hospital system is looking at it like you only look at 35 people. Mm-hmm. You know, I see my volume is like thousands of patients. And, you know, how do we then scale some of those things up? So I think at least the current literature is limiting in that way. However, I think part of it is you know, the ability to push through a lot of that red tape and that research red tape. Um, Because there are a lot of different places that are trying to implement some new strategies, you know, for their patient populations. I think in bigger cities like New York City, like their health department and some of their major hospitals are incorporating some of these uh, practices, especially in their different boroughs um, Mm. that are more culturally diverse. And I think it's you know, by proximity, they're able to do that just because their their patient pool, it looks so different than, let's say, somewhere in the middle of like Kansas or something. Um, so, you know, they might have more of an incentive, you know, to, to do some of these uh, implementation and best practices that we're seeing. I think it's just harder sometimes for people to grasp um, the concept or how are they going to do it when they're looking at a research study with like 20 people who participated in, a, in, a, in the study. Uh, can we go back to definitions? Sure, Gordon. <laughs> oh Let's talk about gosh. definitions. Oh What's the difference between cultural competency, cultural awareness, and cultural sensitivity, Gordon? Sometimes you get caught up in the weeds. You kind of miss the point of why you're doing it in the first place. The point of doing it in the first place is not to say, oh, yes, I coined a new phrase. The point of it is to address what you came here to address, which is the health disparities that exist in the healthcare system. If you're going to do, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. If you're going to do some type of Mm meta-analysis, you need synchronization. You need to be able to compare one study to another study to another study. But if we're all using different definitions and having Mm. different characteristics, then how can you really talk about this system if you're essentially measuring different things i hear you i'm with you but i know i've heard that argument too so what was the definition of cultural competence again (laughs) oh don't don't. we're gonna so lashawn is trying to push my buttons so with that we're gonna move on to um exactly what i said so how do we take the good stuff that exists in cultural competence and move forward to integrate it into healthcare practice to address some of these issues around the diverse population in terms of ethnicity, culture, language, and other factors that influence, you know, patients' perceived quality of care and in the long run go to improve health outcomes. For me, how I look at it is 
the role that I play in understanding health communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, so in my MPH program, we didn't have a health communication course or anything like that. Um, but I took a health communication course through the College of Journalism mm-hmm. just because I was interested in it. Um, but now I know a lot of programs are incorporating health communication as a discipline under public health. Um, but I think it's really important for us to understand what encompasses health communication and how do we implement that in our day-to-day practice, no matter where it is that we're working. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, um, I worked for a little bit working as a health communication researcher and really understanding the nuances of what it means to actually have that flyer in a doctor's office Hmm. um what research should go into developing these designs and campaigns or like public health ads that you might see on tv um and pushing that as the way to go before we just throw up a flyer somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people or companies or organizations don't have, you know, the full budget to do a thorough um, research before they implement, but I think it's important to understand who your population is, um, understand who it is that you're working with, who is going to see your publication, who is going mm-hmm. to see your postcard, or who is going to you know, read this message at the doctor's office. The target Um, audience. Yes, it's so important. I know we use target audience all the time, but really, do we know, you know, what they want to see? Mm -hmm. What picture will resonate with them? What, Mm -hmm. you know, words and messages will they actually, you know, take in? Um, While we cannot force them to take some kind of action, Um, But if we can get some of that conversation going or some of that general understanding, um, I think it goes a long way. So I really try to look at at things from this health communications landscape um, because it it can't be one size fits all. Um, And even now in my work now, you know, in my nine to five space, it might be difficult, but whenever I can, I'm like, okay, who, who is going to read this? Like, who are we writing this for? Um, and then I take that, tease that apart a little bit further with Focus Health Collective, where I'm like, if we're going to communicate with people, it needs to be in a way that's going to resonate with my audience or whoever mm-hmm. the audience is that day. It can't just be, you know, health stats, talking to health stats. Right, like it's it's right, not yeah. going to go anywhere. So that was my tangent for the day. But I, I think it's so important and, and underutilized that we don't really think through who is the end user for any yes. type of health information that we're putting out. Yeah, I think that's very important, that communication aspect and that actually focusing on your target audience. One of the aspects that I was interested in as well was in terms of healthcare, how can we help beyond the actual clinical encounter? So we're talking about the importance of tailoring the care of patients. And I was a part of some research that looked um, at medical student education at one of our local universities. And so the goal of this program was to actually increase the awareness of resources that future physicians could use that were based in the community that they felt could be beneficial to the patients in their practice later on. So I think understanding that there may be specific resources that may be better suited for individuals rather than chunking and grouping individuals together and providing general recommendations of what to do next. 
is going to be important. So for the physician to have an understanding of resources in the community, such as food banks, support groups, different community groups and clubs, it goes a long way for the patients. And so when we're talking about effective delivery of healthcare services that meets social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients, having the physician understand what's going on in the community is going Mm. to be very important. Yeah, LaShawn, that's very important. I, I do value academic research and, you know, principles and things like that. But I just think exactly how you just framed the argument is how I want it to be framed. I, it's the, the word or whatever we call it is less important than the actual goal we're trying to achieve. So that was just my two cents. And there's less value in trying to pick apart the nuances. It's just like the um, the evidence, uh, what's it called, LaShawn? The evidence in public health where you go from expert opinion up to meta-analysis and syst- systematic reviews. Oh, yeah, the hierarchy right? of evidence. The hierarchy of, the hierarchy of evidence, right? Yeah. But then if you just look at it as black or white, you, you miss that a good observational study mm-hmm. might be better than a terrible RCT, right? Yeah. So it's not about a fixed hierarchy of what's good or bad. It's just more about looking deeper to see what are the different values in all these kinds of models that we're talking about and implementing the good parts of all of them. So that brings me towards, um, we're all public health practitioners here, and we spent most of this uh, discussion talking about healthcare systems when we talked about how public health systems are, you know, essentially a separate but interworking system with the healthcare system. So our audience might be wondering, you know, where are the medical doctors in discussion? And I do acknowledge that this is a conversation that they need to be brought in as well. But mm-hmm. I think there is value here because public health and healthcare work together in terms of primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention. So all the way from preventing disease and promoting health to ensuring that um, people who do get sick get the treatment that um, they do need. So public health has a role because public health can also help to address some of these roles talked extensively about um, health communication mm-hmm. and how a lot of um, programs don't emphasize the importance of um, health communication. So health communication is a big piece in terms of communicating effectively to different audiences um, who experience or different vulnerable populations who might need to receive information differently. So um, I would say public health does have a role to play um, in the disparities that we see in the healthcare system because public health is a uh, field of science for preventing disease and promoting health. And health communication can be a valuable tool in that. Yeah, exactly. And if we're talking about public health's role in achieving cultural competence or improving cultural competence in our health systems, we can even look at, and I know everyone always talks about this, but it's so important, the education aspect. So even if I look back, many medical schools are just starting to have classes on the sociocultural determinants of health, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, exactly. And and having like a physician workforce that's not aware of like all these different factors that can affect health outcomes, that's not a very culturally competent um, way of going about things, right? Mm-hmm. So these ideas are actually traditionally taught in many public health programs and health sciences programs. So what you start seeing now is that a lot of programs are offering a combined degree in MD, MPH programs. And Gordon touches on a great point because in public health, we always talk about prevention, right? So 
let's look at a patient interaction with some doctor, right? If the doctor is not understanding the cultural, social, linguistic nuances of the patient, that patient may not feel understood. And in, in some cases, they may misinterpret what the doctor is saying. And as we already mentioned, that leads to negative health outcomes. So I think what I'm trying to say is, from a public health perspective, we have to understand before the encounter happens, mm. what's going wrong. And as such, we got to implement measures to ensure that it doesn't lead with the negative health outcome. And these could include medical mistrust or even the patient not returning for a future appointment in fear that they're not being taken um, seriously. Yeah, that's a good point, LaShawn, because even if you think not to go off topic too much, but if you think of even cardiovascular disease, hypertension and how culture plays into that, some cultures... um, their diets are heavily influenced by salty foods and traditional in, in traditional foods, right? So when a patient comes in, it's like, oh, ah, these black people always have issues with hypertension. You need to understand what types of cultural and traditional norms are in place that contribute to those health disparities and work with those patients in a way not to stigmatize them, but help them to get the best of both their culture traditions and their health and i think that's just the missing piece here the md and ph combination i think is is so important um when we think about preventing uh some of these issues i think sometimes you know a lot of my md friends and i appreciate them for what they do i think you know often their focus is on you know what can i do in this moment to stop Mm -hmm. this issue Um, And, you know, and I get that that's such an integral part of what they do. But at the same time, I think the conversation needs to be pushed a little bit further to why did you come here in the first place or how did you get here? Mm. Um, And then almost like working backwards to, you know, prevent you from having to come here so often. Um, And I don't know if that's necessarily the physician's space, but I think that's where public health can come in Mm -hmm. um, to really try to push some of these programs at the local level, um, whether it's like health education or health promotion services, um, whatever that might look like, community health workers, but to really push um, some of the many barriers that we know in public health that, you know, led to so-and-so presenting themselves at, at the emergency room. Before they got there, there were so many points along the way where there could have been some kind of intervention done. Um, but for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, either didn't happen, whatever the case might be. And now they're showing up at the ER, you know, at like a, you know, high risk, you know, situation. Right. And, um, and, but we missed so many points along the way before they got there. And I don't think necessarily it's the doctor's job to, you know, close those gaps along the way. Right. Um, right. I, I, I think that's where our, our job comes in. Right. So you're just saying this. So basic understanding. So if you take the example of a patient coming in with um, respiratory problems very frequently, right, the doctor might prescribe prescribe them an inhaler and then they keep coming back. And then if the doctor doesn't, you know, have the process of thinking of incorporating the social determinants of health into practice, they might say, oh, this patient isn't using the inhaler properly or they're irresponsible, whatever. But when you incorporate the social determinants of health, you might say, Maybe they live. Maybe they live in an environment where um, the environmental pollution is very bad, and they can't do any better than they're doing now. So then, this, even though it's not their role to address the problem directly, what you will at least have is they won't stigmatize the patient for their the health outcomes that they're having. So mm-hmm. that is essentially the epitome of 
cultural competence in a sense because you're you're understanding the different nuances that go behind a patient's ability to be healthy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think also too just having you know, representation in healthcare. I think that's like, let's just call it what it is. Like we need Mm -hmm. more, you know, people, physicians of color practicing in, you know, in communities where, you know, people look like them. Because I know for me as an individual, that's important to me when I'm picking a doctor on my list of providers on my network. I'm like, okay, what do you look like? Just out of curiosity, because I also understand how that's in that relationship is looks a little bit different than having a physician who doesn't look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's another push having more, um, you know, black people, people of color in medicine and in, in, in our communities that, you know, you can see and hopefully will provide some kind of comfort level, you know, to even going. Um, but I do think the, the physician may not be the stopgap, but they do definitely play a role in some of those um, cultural competence conversations. All right. So this this has been an amazing discussion. And as you probably heard, I could go on for days. Everyone else here can go on for days, but um, we'll leave it here for now. I'll Before we conclude formally, um, Rose uh, has, an, as, as we mentioned, an LLC called the Focused Health Collective. And uh, hopefully you can tell us in the, the minutes that we have left about a little bit more about it. The LLC is really a space where I use to communicate um, around health communication with uh, organizations and businesses. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, nonprofits struggle um, with just not having the expertise reaching the populations they're trying to to reach. So that's kind of, kind of organization and really help them to better understand the populations they're serving and then ultimately providing and disseminating health information to that specific um, audience in a way that is understandable, that is engaging, and mm-hmm. is culturally mm-hmm. competent. Um, and then on a more fun side, I have an Instagram account that has the same name, Focus Health Collective, and that's, you know, just another platform to really engage with um, audiences in pu- putting out health communication or health content in general and just kind of breaking down some of the nuances that we know about in public health and making sure that you know people are able to understand and relate to the information that's out there so the website is focushealthcollective.com and then you, the same name for instagram focus health. everyone go follow her on instagram focused yeah. health collective <laughs> let's go thanks rose thank you rose thank you thanks, thanks rose All thank right. you guys so much for having me on i appreciate it remember Public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.